Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you all, and I bring greetings from Christ Reformed Baptist Church up in Lookout Mountain, and <clears throat> I'm glad to have the opportunity to be with you this morning. If you will, please turn with me to Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 8 this morning. Brethren, I ask you, why is it that we're here? Why have you stopped your busy schedules and set this day aside to come to Calvary Baptist Church this morning? Well, the reason is that we can worship our great God and Savior. So we've worshipped Him by singing hymns, and we've worshipped Him through prayer as well, but now we worship Him through the proclamation of His Word as God Himself speaks to you this morning. Well, today we'll be in Mark chapter 8. The sermon text today is Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. The title of this message is Satisfied in Jesus. Satisfied in Jesus. Well, obviously, verses uh, verses 1 to 21 is uh, quite a long text at 21 verses. There's a lot here in this account by Mark. And you may be wondering, why am I preaching this to you today? When last time I I was here, I preached four verses. This is a much longer text. Uh, But of all the scriptures I could deliver this morning, why this one? Why these 21 verses? The simple answer is uh, I and some other men at at Christ Reformed Baptist Church have been preaching through Mark. So this is actually the last text I preached, but that's the simple answer. Uh, When I preached this text, I was deeply convicted by its message. And I think it's a message that we all need to hear, and I need to be reminded of myself. And that message from our passage in Mark 8 is that Christ is sufficient. Jesus Christ is sufficient. This is a message that we all need to hear, especially today, and I think we too often forget. So as we turn to the Word of God, dwell on that message that Christ is sufficient. Allow the Word to work in you to believe that Jesus is sufficient to satisfy your needs, that he will feed you. Well, hear now from the Word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8. In those days, when a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they, had been with, they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, and they faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people? with bread here in this desolate place. And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them 
got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for giving us this day, this day in the name of your Son, Jesus, this day of rest, and this day of worship, Lord. Now as we worship you through the reading and proclamation of Christ from your word, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts, help us to see, to understand, and to hear uh, what your word means. Help us to perceive it. And let it not just be head knowledge, but let it be heart knowledge, Lord. We pray for faith this morning as we hear your word and as Christ speaks. Pray this in his name. Amen. Take and eat. Two simple words, two simple elements, yet infinitely profound. These words, take and eat, mark the institution of the Lord's Supper, communion. The communion of Christ's body and blood. In the Lord's Supper, in communion, we have the promise that Christ, that Jesus Christ is spiritually nourishing us, that he's meeting our needs. And I believe that those words, take and eat, are also the essence and the heart of our passage here in Mark. The promise of take and eat are the essence of this passage from Mark. Jesus' feeding of the 4,000, his prophetic answer to the Pharisees, and his rebuke of the disciples They all point to the fact that no matter what, he feeds his sheep. No matter what, Jesus Christ feeds his sheep. Well, as we consider our text, I'm reminded that you all don't have the privilege of having recently gone through the book of Mark, as we have at Lookout Mountain. But you have been going through Luke's gospel, and there are various parallels and similarities between the two gospels. And at the same time, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel are accounts of Jesus' life and ministry that kind of differ with one another to highlight different aspects of his life, of his person, of his ministry. And the Holy Spirit has inspired both of these Gospels for a purpose as well. So for that reason, I think it's worth noting a few things before we dive in about this passage from Mark and the context. Well, this passage is kind of a turning point, a fulcrum of Mark's Gospel, On the one hand, it's a turning point for the disciples. Up to this point in Mark, the disciples have continually displayed that they don't even know who they follow. They don't know who Jesus really is. Their foolishness has been a constant point of display. And as we see in these last verses of this passage, that's made clear once again. But that's coming to a tipping point in Mark 8. 
And on the other hand, this section is also a turning point for Jesus himself. So far, Jesus has somewhat concealed his identity as the Messiah, as the Christ, in order that the crowds and the Pharisees and even his disciples would not confuse or misunderstand his heavenly mission and identity with something earthly and temporal. But this concealment of his identity is also coming to a head. As we see later in Mark 8, Peter finally confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He finally begins to understand and perceive, hear and see who Christ really is. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That's what Peter will come to confess. So Mark 8 is a turning point, and that's important for us to remember as we consider these first 21 verses this morning. Because only if Jesus is the Messiah, only if he is the Christ, can he truly be sufficient and meet the needs of his people. Well, now that some of the legwork is done and we have the context in mind, we can dig into the text. But again, as we do so, keep on the forefront of your mind the main idea of the passage, that Jesus Christ feeds the sheep. Well, a helpful way to break down our text this morning is the same way that the ESV translation does, or most Bible translations. We have verses 1 through 10, which recount the miraculous feeding of the 4,000. The next uh, three verses, verses 11 to 13, are a testimony to the conversation between Christ and the Pharisees. And verses 14 to 21 are Jesus' discussion with the disciples. And most clearly, though, we, we see that Jesus feeds the sheep most clearly in the first 10 verses in the miraculous feeding. But if it isn't already clear, I hope to make it clear to you all that this whole section, all three, all three sections, verses 1 to 21, they're all centered on Jesus' sufficiency and his ability to feed his sheep. Jesus Christ feeds his sheep because he alone is sufficient. From these three sections of the text, I want you to see how each one, each section, points to an aspect of how Jesus Christ feeds his sheep. Well, in the first ten verses, verses 1 to 10, we see that Jesus feeds his sheep against all odds. Jesus Christ feeds his sheep against all odds. So look with me again at these verses. I'll reread them just so they're fresh in our mind. In those days when a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. In this miraculous feeding event, Jesus manifests his divine power by feeding thousands despite the seemingly impossible circumstances. This crowd that came from afar 
had followed Jesus out into a desolate place, as it says, and as in the last feeding miracle, which happened back in chapter 6, when he fed 5,000. Now, the crowd of the 4,000 here in Mark 8, uh, like Jesus says of the 5,000, this crowd is also like those who are sheep without a shepherd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus, seeing their need for a shepherd, and also seeing their need, their hunger, he tends to them, despite the odds stacked against them. The desolate places of ancient Israel weren't exactly overflowing with food, with milk and honey. And the amount of food they had left with them was barely enough to fill a couple grocery bags. Now, considering how far out the crowd had followed them, followed Jesus, they could possibly die, or as he says, they could faint on the way if they continued without food. Now, this situation created a need which could only be met by the person, Jesus Christ himself, by the Lord God himself. And, as, and he does meet this need in the person and work of Christ. As Christ miraculously multiplies the bread and the fish to feed the entire 4K, 4,000, and to have an abundance of food left over. Well, there are a few basic uh, takeaways from these 10 verses. First, this passage shows us that Jesus' sheep are not just Jews. Back in chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000, that crowd was primarily Jewish. But the setting and the location of this miracle in chapter 8 points to a primarily Gentile crowd. Now, the kingdom of God is at hand, marked by Christ's coming, The flock of God is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction in his church. In many ways, this is a kind of a prototype of how the church fulfills her mission. The church, by the authority of Christ and after his likeness, the church also goes out into the desolate places, places far off that need the gospel, making disciples of all nations. Christ is modeling the mission for his church. So here in Mark 8, we get a picture of the engrafting of the nations into the sheepfold of Christ, who is the great shepherd. And in his flock, there is neither Jew or Gentile. He feeds and nourishes them all. This passage shows us that Jesus feeds all who come to him, even from far off desolate places, even those in the greatest need. This is not to say that the entire crowd here were true believers, that they were Jesus' true sheep. That would be highly doubtful. If you gather 4,000 people, even if all 4,000 profess to know Christ, the likelihood of them all being genuine believers is not very likely. And if we're being honest, in modern America, that's even more true today. What we see in this passage is a picture of how Christ cares for his true flock. It's a picture of how how his flock can find sufficiency in him. We also see in this feeding miracle the compassion of Christ for sinners. Jesus himself says at the beginning of the passage that he has compassion on the crowd. And then Mark records how Jesus, who has compassion, how he does the impossible for them. And notice that Jesus isn't asked to produce food. The problem is brought up. But unlike the feeding miracle in chapter 6, here in chapter 8, Jesus takes initiative. He himself notices their need and he meets it with an overabundance food. Now again, keep in mind that this is just a picture of how Christ nourishes his flock, the church. If Jesus had such great compassion on the crowd by meeting their physical needs, 
how much greater is his compassion for us? Jesus meets their physical needs before his people, for his flock. He meets both our physical and our spiritual needs. Our most basic need is a spiritual one. We are in need of a restored relationship with our God. Jesus meets that need for all who trust in him. Despite the silly proclamations of prosperity teachers, it is still biblically sound to recognize that Jesus blesses us richly. That is an immense wonder. But the problem is we're so blind to how Christ meets our needs. We expect something different. We expect earthly riches only. Sometimes we expect only earthly riches that are more than what we need. But we forget about our spiritual needs that Christ can meet and does meet. We too often look at our circumstances and forget all the riches we have with Christ in heaven. And as we will consider later, this is the same mistake that the disciples end up making, as they have continually made and do so here in chapter 8. But again, the key takeaway is that Jesus knows and he meets the needs of his sheep. Now, it may be obvious, but we do have to ask, how do we know that Jesus really meets their needs? If this is a picture of that, how do we know that that's the case? Well, I think we know because the text tells us. It tells us that they're satisfied. Verse 8, and they ate and they were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. More than that, not only does Jesus feed the crowd, not only does he satisfy them, but he produces an overabundance of food, more than they could possibly eat. So the message or the picture from this passage is clear. Despite every circumstance against all odds, Jesus Christ, who is the great shepherd, he feeds his sheep with an overflow of grace and mercy. Well, now let's consider the second passage of this text, verses 11 to 13. I'll read those verses again as well. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Here the Pharisees seek for a sign from Jesus. In the short passage, we can gather that Jesus feeds his sheep despite unbelief. He feeds his sheep despite unbelief. Well, nothing is mentioned in these three verses about whether or not the Pharisees were at the miraculous feeding of the 4,000, if they were fed, possibly, or how soon after that this conversation took place. But what we do know is that the Pharisees throughout Mark have been following Jesus, practically harassing him the whole time, so that they can frame him as a heretic or even turn him into their own political revolutionary. Now, if they weren't witnesses to this feeding miracle... There's no doubt that they had somehow gotten word of it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be asking for a sign, supposedly. And yet, the irony here is that they have received a sign. Whether they saw it or heard about it, as we hear about it from the text, they did receive a sign from Jesus. These Pharisees, in all likelihood, they weren't interested in a sign from God which showed mercy, which showed compassion and grace. What they wanted was probably a sign of judgment. They wanted to see fire from heaven. They refused to believe the proof before their eyes that this Jesus 
This Jesus was really capable to manifest divine power in and of himself and for the work of mercy and grace. They refused to believe that. And they wanted to wrongfully pin the law upon, upon him. The Pharisees wanted to pin the law upon Jesus to paint him as a false prophet so that they could stone him as the warnings are against false prophets in Deuteronomy 13. But Jesus' power continually points to the one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus, again, he did give them the sign, as we see in the first ten verses, but it wasn't the sign that they wanted. The Pharisees couldn't stand to believe that God's appointed servant, that the Christ, the Messiah, would show mercy and grace before judgment. Well, Jesus' response, like a prophet, a true prophet, is a rebuke of the Pharisees. He simply declares that this generation will receive no sign. Well, that begs the question, what are signs? In Mark's Gospel, signs are acts or miracles which point to the God who is present. Signs are a witness, a testimony to the God who is there among his people. But Jesus says that no sign shall be given. So what, what exactly does he mean? Well, he isn't saying that God is not among them, that God is not there. He isn't saying that he hasn't done miraculous things in their midst. Jesus' point is a bit of a rhetorical point. He's saying that the Pharisees won't see the sign for what it truly is. Or to use the analogy we see later, they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. They don't perceive or understand. In reality, the proof, the evidence that Jesus is the Christ, that he's not a false prophet, has continually been before their eyes. But the Pharisees have already made their mind up about Jesus. They demand proof and evidence, but truthfully, they've already had these things before them. Well, as helpful as proof and evidence can be, even for us, or even signs of the times, these, these things don't destroy unbelief, which lies in the heart. Unbelief is destroyed only when the veil is removed from one's eyes, when their ears are unstopped, when they've been born again from above. When they turn to Jesus in faith, trusting that he is sufficient for their needs, only then can one understand who Jesus really is. But despite all unbelief, Jesus' sign here, the miraculous feeding, remained a clear testimony to them. It remains a clear testimony to us that God in Christ will feed his sheep, that he will meet their needs. Despite what the world thinks, despite what skeptical onlookers and unbelievers think, Jesus has, does, and will meet the needs of his sheep. Well, now that we've seen uh, Jesus' feeding miracle, that he's fed them against all odds, we've seen that he feeds them against unbelief like that of the Pharisees, finally we see from this passage that Jesus feeds his sheep even when they don't understand. Jesus feeds his sheep even when they fail to understand. We see this in verses 14 to 21. I'll read those, beginning in 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not remember? Do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? In these eight verses, Jesus warns his disciples to beware of eleven of the Pharisees and of Herod. But we also read of their foolish response, a pattern that we can see throughout Mark's Gospel. Well, in some ways, this warning about the leaven of the Pharisees is kind of a parable that Jesus tells. Obviously, Jesus doesn't mean that the disciples need to avoid literal leaven or yeast of bread of the Pharisees and Herod. If anything, the people who would be most uh, strict about avoiding leaven would be the Pharisees. They would be most strict about that. So obviously, Jesus means something other than just the literal leaven here. What is meant by leaven most simply is malice and evil. It can be more said about that, but that's most simply what Jesus means. Avoid the malice and evil, the unbelief of the Pharisees. And that's said in other places of Scripture as well. Leaven is used to describe, describe things that way. But more specifically here, leaven refers to the disposition to believe Jesus only on the basis of signs and miracles. Only to believe in Jesus when compelled by miracles. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples to have faith in him apart from, yet not disconnected from, his signs and wonders. They need to have faith in him, not just his miracles or signs. Those signs were always pointing to something greater, that God was there providing for his people, that Christ is feeding his sheep. Well, in all this, what did the disciples gather exactly? Well, as we've seen, and as we see in other places in Mark, they didn't gather much of substance at all. Rather than seeking to discern and understand Jesus' words, the only thing they can think about is that he said something about bread. Oh, leaven? That's the stuff that's in bread. That's what we don't have right now. What are we going to do? And these disciples, the ones who were closest to Jesus throughout his ministry, and had witnessed his miraculous multiplying of food, not just once, but twice, they were still blind to the reality before their eyes. The crowd in the opening verses show what trusting in Jesus' sufficiency looked like. It's just a picture, but the crowd shows us that, even if only in an earthly manner. But Jesus' own disciples, those closest to him, they can't even trust in Jesus from an earthly perspective, yet alone let alone a mere uh, spiritual one. The disciples, they represent, if we're being honest, they represent how we think at times as well. Not just relating to our physical needs when, when we are in need. Maybe we're worried about our finances or, or circumstances. But this also represents how we can think spiritually as well when it comes to our salvation. We so often forget that, forget the grace of God in Christ and we turn inward. We forget about what God has already done for us in the person of Christ. And like the disciples, confused about how they're going to provide their food, they overlook Christ, and they turn inward and seek 
how they're going to provide bread for themselves. Just like we so often seek how we're going to provide our own salvation. And at other times, sometimes we're so dazed by our own sin that we don't find assurance in the salvation that Christ has bought for us. But this is not the end of the story for the disciples. The text tells us in verse 21 that they would someday understand. Listen carefully to Jesus' words. He says, do you not yet understand? That's important. There's yet hope that these disciples, foolish as they are, they don't see yet, they don't hear, there's hope that they will come to see and hear Jesus in all of his glory. And for those here today struggling with assurance of salvation, or even those backslidden in sin, there's hope that you may yet come to understand and to be assured and confident in Jesus Christ alone. Well, I ask all of you, brothers and sisters, how often do we fall prey to this same foolishness of the disciples? How often do we think that our circumstances surrounding us are too impossible that God can't satisfy our needs, that he can't feed us? I think this is a temptation for us all right now, given our current cultural and even economic outlook. And more than that, our spiritual outlook as well. And how easy is it for us to look past what brings us real satisfaction and focus merely on our circumstances, our resources, our finances? What we must never forget is to seek Jesus Christ and Him alone for true satisfaction. I ask you another question. What is your greatest need? Above earthly needs like food, like bread and fish, as we see in this passage, what is it that you need most? Because of your sin, you are separated from God by nature, and you are guilty before Him, and all of us deserve the just punishment for our sins. And at death, each one of us will stand before the judgment seat, and we will answer for our sins. Ultimately, we need to be made right with God. We can't answer for our sins alone. Our answer must be Christ. We need a Savior who can satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ alone, himself, God, and man, can meet that great need. So if you're trusting in him, God has declared you just and adopted you into his family. And for those in the family of God, there's no condemnation. Well, in closing, I want to suggest two ways that you can find satisfaction in Christ. When Christ feeds us and sustains us, how can we find true satisfaction in him? How can we avoid blindness or deafness of the Pharisees, of the disciples even? Well, first, remember his past deeds. Remember his past works and deeds. When the disciples failed to understand here, what did Jesus do? He redirected their attention to what he's already done. Twice. Our faith, again, though it's not rooted in the signs and miracles themselves, our faith is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who alone is able to perform miraculous deeds for his people, who can miraculously sustain us and nourish us spiritually. So if we want to be satisfied in him when he feeds us, We need to remember his past works in redemptive history. Well, the second way that we can be satisfied in Christ when he feeds us is to trust in him as our true food. So look with me back at verse 14. 
Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now at first glance, there doesn't seem to be anything special about this verse. You might read over it and think nothing of it, but it clearly says that they forgot to bring bread, and then right after, it says that there was a loaf. In verse 16, it even says they had no bread, so we know that that fact is true. So what exactly is the loaf in verse 14? I would argue, as do many other commentators, that Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is symbolically using the the word loaf here to represent Jesus in relation to their absence of food. It's easy to overlook here, but it's important. In fact, in the original language, he even uses a different word to distinguish loaf from bread to make that point clearer. So to put it simply, Jesus is the loaf. He is the true bread which the disciples had foolishly overlooked. Making this observation, one writer says, in any event, the disciples should have realized that if they had Jesus, they had enough. If they had Jesus, they had enough. Jesus is the bread of life. He's all that they truly need, and brethren, he is all that you truly need. Jesus Christ is sufficient. That's the main idea of this passage. So let us seek him. He promises to draw near to those who draw near to him. And he alone can satisfy your needs. So to find satisfaction in Jesus, remember his past works, and feast on him as the bread of life. That's how we can see Christ. Now, that's how, but where do we seek him? What are some examples of where we seek him? Well, we can seek him in the Lord's Supper and Communion. In the Lord's Supper, we look back at the mighty works of God in redemptive history in Christ. I want to clarify that the Lord's Supper, Communion, isn't just a time of remembrance, like a memorial service. It is that, but it's more than that. Like in this passage, in the Lord's Supper and Communion, Jesus is spiritually present. He is the spiritual loaf in this passage. So with that said, the Lord's Supper is rooted in the acts of God. The Lord's Supper looks back to when God fed the Israelites in the wilderness. By the manna, the bread from heaven, the people of God found their needs met and were satisfied. This was a shadow of something greater, someone greater to come. And most specifically, the Lord's Supper points back to God's deeds in the person of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And we especially see this in the Last Supper when he institutes the Lord's Supper, when he says, take and eat. Jesus took the bread and the cup, symbolic of his body and blood, and he told the disciples to take and eat, a promise that he would sustain them spiritually. In essence, this is what God said to the Israelites in the wilderness. This is what he said to the 4,000 in this passage. And this is what he tells us as well. He says, take and eat. When we partake of communion, remember that. Remember that it is reminding us that he is spiritually nourishing us, that he is meeting our needs. In the Lord's Supper, we have the promise that he supplies us in need. Well, the Supper also gives us a picture of the feast that awaits us on the last day. On that day, we will be in need no more. We will be in the presence of the bread of life himself, and we will be fed by him for eternity. Well, we should also see Christ in his word in Scripture. The word, like food, can satisfy us. It can meet our needs. 
various verses in Scripture speak of the word Scripture using food imagery itself. As we see in Hebrews, the word contains spiritual milk. That's what it is for some. That means the word can be the basic teachings of the faith. Seems counterintuitive, but that's what we need sometimes. Spiritual milk is it's aimed at nourishing the spiritual needs of believers, especially new believers, or even those who, like the disciples, are still blind and deaf, need eyes to see and understand. And there's hope that those being fed by the spiritual milk will someday come to truly hear his word by faith. And then they'll need spiritual meat, as we also see in Hebrews. The spiritual meat of the word also meets the needs of God's people. It especially meets the needs of the more matured faith. We hear it in the preaching. We hear it in teaching. And in many ways, God's word is it's like a freely offered meal even to unbelievers. When the word is preached and read, what is offered to unbelievers is that which is the only thing that can satisfy their needs. Jesus Christ and him alone. If that describes you, if you have not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good, turn to him in faith. Be fed by his word and be sustained in him alone. But if you are trusting in him, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, take heart. Know that he is meeting your needs, even this day. Well, finally, how can we seek Jesus? How can we seek him and be satisfied in him? We can seek him through prayer. In prayer, we lay before him all of our needs, trusting that he will meet all of them. So with that, brethren, let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this message from Mark 8, that in Christ you are meeting our needs, that you have met our needs in him, that on the cross Christ died, he bled for us, that we might be made right with you. Lord, we ask this day that you would continue to meet our needs as we await your son's second coming, as we await the feast that awaits us in the last day. We pray that we would be sustained by your word, by prayer, by the Lord's Supper, by preaching, by all forms of worship, and that we'd find that our faith would be rooted in Christ alone. Lord, we pray all of this in his name. Amen.